Good evening, everyone, and welcome to Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon. What I'm going to be doing in this four-year-long podcast is following along with the Come Follow Me manual in the curriculum of study for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. We'll be starting with the very first lesson in 2024. The subject and course of study for 2024 is the Book of Mormon. And here's the slide that I've created. It says Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon, yours truly, where you learn stuff you're never going to hear in regular Sunday school. And as I said, this is the Come Follow Me manual on the Book of Mormon for the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Lesson number one, covering from January 1st through 7th of 2024. My idea is to get these lessons, these podcasts, these shows out a week in advance of when that subject is being studied in Sunday school in the LDS church to give you a chance to brush up on your gospel knowledge before you go to church. And then perhaps it will supplement what you'll be hearing in your regular Sunday school. Now, let me go over here. The very first, by over here, I mean into my slideshow. Here we go. Let me just check and make sure that's going. Yes, it is a tale of two testimonies. The first lesson is about the introductory material for the Book of Mormon, and it talks about the gift of the Holy Ghost or the witness of the Holy Ghost in praying about the Book of Mormon and learning that it is true. I decided to frame my discussion with you today around this idea of a tale of two testimonies, and these are my personal testimonies. The first testimony is about the Book of Mormon, and the second testimony is about something else which I will introduce to you as we go along. But there's a, a picture of Charles Dickens there, since I'm ripping off on his title, A Tale of Two Cities, for my title, A Tale of Two Testimonies. Now, the first thing I noticed in the Come Follow Me manual is that it appears that Moroni's promise for Moroni chapter 10, verses 3 through 5, is being watered down somewhat in the new materials. And I'll show you what I mean. What I have here highlighted is actual language from the manual, the Come Follow Me manual. And there are two places where I see this. The first is, this year, as you read the Book of Mormon, pray about it and apply its teachings, you will invite the Savior's power into your life. And you may feel moved to say, as the three witnesses did in their testimony, it is marvelous in my eyes. And the second passage is this. The Holy Ghost can testify to you, not will, but the Holy Ghost can testify to you that the Book of Mormon is true. Even though you haven't seen the gold plates as the three witnesses and eight witnesses did, as you read their words, think about how their testimonies strengthen yours. Now, there's nothing particularly wrong with any of that. What I note is that it is so watered down from when I joined the church back in 1978. I was baptized in June of 1978 when I was 18 years old, fresh out of high school, and I immersed myself in Mormonism. I love studying about Mormonism. I love the gospel, and I learned everything I possibly could about it. And you didn't actually have to study that hard in order to be aware that this is a very much watered-down version of Moroni's promise. Here, from 1983 General Conference, we have Elder Bruce R. McConkie, who was the scriptorian for the church. 
October 1983 General Conference, his talk titled, What Think Ye of the Book of Mormon? And this is what he said, which is reflective of the strength of Moroni's promise then versus how much has been watered down in the new Come Follow Me manual now. Here's what he said. There is another and simpler test that all who seek to know the truth might well take. It calls for us simply to read, ponder, and pray, all in the spirit of faith and with an open mind, to keep ourselves alert to the issues at hand. As we do read, ponder, and pray, we should ask ourselves a thousand times, could any man have written this book? And it is absolutely guaranteed. See, that's not watered down, is it? And it is absolutely guaranteed that sometime between the first and thousandth time this question is asked, every sincere and genuine truth seeker will, not may, not can, will come to know by the power of the Spirit that the Book of Mormon is true, that it is the mind and will and voice of the Lord to the whole world in our day. And I actually got a video clip from that conference so we can hear Elder McConkie say it in his own words because he was a masterful orator and he spoke with power and he spoke with conviction and he spoke with clarity. So let me find this. This is timestamp 1312 and I'll actually have to find it on here. 1312. Here we go. There is another and simpler test that all who seek to know the truth might well take. It calls for us simply to read, ponder, and pray, all in the spirit of faith and with an open mind, to keep ourselves alert to the issues at hand as we do read, ponder, and pray. We should ask ourselves 1,000 times, could any man have written this book? And it is absolutely guaranteed that sometime between the first and the thousandth time this question is asked, every sincere and genuine truth-seeker will come to know by the power of the Spirit that the Book of Mormon is true, that it is the mind and will and voice of the Lord to the whole world in our day. And there it is. There you heard Elder McConkie say it in his own words. That is the promise of Moroni regarding the truthfulness of the Book of Mormon and how to find it out that I was raised with. So now, having that background, what I want to do is I want to share, whoops, excuse me, trying to move this over here. Here we go to the next slide. My testimony of the Book of Mormon, that's the first of the two testimonies we'll be talking about today. My testimony of the Book of Mormon, this is the Book of Mormon, as we commonly see it nowadays, the Book of Mormon that I read and that I gained my testimony of looked a little bit different. It looked like this. This is the Book of Mormon that was published by the church in 1976. And it was around for a few years and it was there for my friend Bruce to hand to me in order for me to read and gain my testimony of the Book of Mormon. So this is what my first copy of the Book of Mormon looked like. And it brings back memories just seeing it here. So let me tell you about my testimony of the Book of Mormon and the story behind how I gained it. Okay, here we are. Now, I had been a member of the church for a few years. My very best friend in high school was Bruce, and he was a member of the church. He introduced me to Mormonism. He actually baptized me in June of 1978. And some time went by. I didn't really 
read the Book of Mormon beyond the assigned passages for Sunday school or what the missionaries had given me to read while I was taking the missionary discussions in the early part of June 1978. But the time came when Bruce was going to get a patriarchal blessing. He was uh, 18 years old. He had not gotten a patriarchal blessing yet, and he wanted to prepare to receive his. And he was very excited about getting his patriarchal blessing. I'd never heard of a patriarchal blessing, but his enthusiasm infected me, and I wanted to get my own patriarchal blessing. So I remember going to our bishop, Bishop Murphy, down at the Sumner Stake Center. It was actually the Puyallup Stake Center, but it was in Sumner. It was recently constructed. Meeting him in his office about this subject, and I wanted to get a patriarchal blessing. And Bishop Murphy, bless his heart, I'm sure wanted to gauge my knowledge of the gospel and how prepared he felt I was to receive my patriarchal blessing. And he asked me what I think was probably going to be a series of questions, except he only asked one because I got hung up on the very first question. The question was simple enough. What he asked me was, so um, do you know what the four standard works of the church are? And I responded with great confidence, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great. Wait a second. I'm coming up with five instead of four. And I knew I had goofed it up. And of course, the mistake I had made was counting the Old Testament and the New Testament separately when I should have just said the Bible. That's one standard work all by itself. Yes, I know that now. I didn't know that then. And Bishop Murphy kind of got a smile on his face. And he said, well, I tell you what, have you read the Book of Mormon? And I said, no, I haven't yet. And he said, here's what I want you to do. I want you to read the Book of Mormon. I want you to pray about it. And I want you to come back to me after you've done that. And we'll talk some more about you getting your patriarchal blessing. So I did that. And I am not a fast reader. And I certainly wasn't back then. But what I did was I was working during the day. I would go to class in the evening. And I would come back home, still living with my folks, come back home into my room. I would not watch TV. I would not do anything else to distract myself. I would get ready for bed. And I would read the Book of Mormon every evening for maybe half an hour or an hour until I made it all the way through. So I had a very structured program, which I adhered to. And not only that, I did something else before I read each night. And this goes back to the missionary discussions where I was taking my discussions from two great elders. There was Elder, Elder Timothy Shanson and Elder... Leland Christensen, I remember their names. Leland Christensen had a wooden leg, or at least a prosthetic leg, which he showed me. And the story was that he had been in a really bad car accident not that long before going on his mission. He lost his leg, had to have a prosthesis, but still he decided he wanted to go on his mission. And that was inspiring to me. Timothy Shanson told me about how I should pray about the Book of Mormon during the discussions, right? And what he said was, he said, what you want to do is every time before you read the Book of Mormon, you want to get down on your knees and you want to pray to God to let you know whether this is really his word, whether the Book of Mormon is the word of God. And then when you're reading the Book of Mormon, he also said, I want you to keep in the back of your mind this question. Could any man have written this book? Interestingly, that's what Bruce R. McConkie said five years later in 1983. I've never really heard that outside of Timothy Shanson and Elder McConkie, so I don't know if there's a connection there. But they were the two to mention it. So I did this back in 1978, and I would pray on my knees by the side of my bed every evening before I read.
the Book of Mormon. And while I was reading it, I would ask myself that question. Could any man have written this book? And obviously the idea is unaided by the power of God. So could any man have written this book and praying every evening? And I had the most miraculous experience in praying my way through the Book of Mormon for the first time when I was 18 years old. Let me describe it to you as best I can. What it was like was this. As I would read the Book of Mormon, it was as if the walls of my mind fell down and I could see to infinity in all directions at once. Now, we go through life, most of us like me, only seeing basically to the front. And there's some vision over here and some peripheral vision out here. But I can't see to the side of me. I can't see behind me. But this experience was as if I could. And not only could I see, I could see to infinity in every direction at the same time. Now, I want to be clear, I didn't see anything out there. There wasn't something that I saw, but I could see. I had that vision opened to me. And so that was my experience. It didn't just happen the first time. I read the Book of Mormon. And by that, I mean read from the Book of Mormon during this process of reading all the way through and praying my way through it. It didn't just happen that first evening, but it did. It happened every single time, every evening, as I was reading my way through the Book of Mormon and praying and having this idea in my head, could any man have written this book? And I found a slide that looks a little bit like what it was that I saw. Uh, this is just a slide I got off the internet. And there it is. Okay. I didn't see all the stars and everything. I didn't see the circles. I didn't see the rocks. But this was the closest thing I could find to something that would give the impression of what it was that I experienced. And it wasn't just that direction. It was every direction at the same time. Absolutely remarkable experience that I had. And when I was done reading the Book of Mormon, I remember thinking, I can't really remember a whole lot about what happened in this book. There's lots of stories. There's lots of storylines. There's lots of characters. It's over 500 pages long. But what I did know in my heart because of this experience was that God had witnessed to me by the power of the Holy Ghost that every word in that book was indeed the word of God, that it was true, that it had actually happened and actually described a people that had lived in the American continents from four, 600 BC to 400 AD, that those people had really lived and that these things had really happened. They really spoke these words. So having said that, that's my testimony of the Book of Mormon. It was powerful. It was wonderful. It was glorious. But the funny thing is, is that as I went on, I thought that this is something that everybody experienced in the church. I thought that I was late to the game and I'm playing catch up. But then as I start talking to other people, I find out that my experience seemed to be rather unique. So I started more and more keeping it to myself, if you know what I mean. I didn't want to be talking about this experience I had to other people who hadn't had the experience and making them feel bad or making them think that I try to make myself look good. But I'm just expressing this as the way it actually happened. So now let's get to my second testimony. I have many testimonies, but these are the two testimonies that I'm talking about tonight. A tale of two testimonies, if you'll recall, is the name of the lesson. And my second testimony had to do 
with a certain leader of the church, not Elder McConkie, but Paul H. Dunn. So this is my testimony of Paul H. Dunn. If you are not my age, and I'm 63 years old, if you were not a member of the church back in the 60s and the 70s, and even into the early 80s, you may not even know of Paul H. Dunn. But Paul H. Dunn was a very charismatic speaker. And you probably know those are in short supply in the LDS church, especially in the leadership. He was remarkable. He was engaging. He was funny. He told great stories and they were gripping and they were faith promoting. And he also wrote a number of books as well. And some of those books, not all of them are here. So he wrote The Human Touch by Paul H. Dunn, Seek the Happy Life by Paul H. Dunn, The Birth That We Call Death by Paul H. Dunn, and Richard M. Irie, or Iyer. That's not all. He had lots. And once again, they're not all here. Here's a one, You and Your World by Paul H. Dunn, and Look at Your World by Paul H. Dunn. And apparently, he even got into the tourism industry with uh, guiding tours to Book of Mormon lands. I found this from a newspaper of the time. Travel with Paul H. Dunn, Book of Mormon tour. Now you can spend 13 spellbinding days exploring the ancient lands of the Nephites and Lamanites with Paul H. Dunn. And there he is, and there's his picture. Now, not only did he do that, he gave lots of talks, and those talks were recorded and reproduced on cassette tape. And he had tons of talks that he did. Here's a few of them here. There's uh, his talk call from a prophet. By the way, these are not my tapes. I got these pictures off the internet. Call from a prophet, catch the vision from 1971, the game of life. Be not ashamed, which is somewhat ironic considering what's going to happen. Have you inquired of the Lord? Paul H. Dunn from 1969. I'm proud to belong. Paul H. Dunn. Preparing for parenthood. Paul H. Dunn. See, he was geared mainly to the youth of the church. I mean, the grown-ups could listen too, but it was mainly geared to the youth. And that's why he was so appealing to people of my generation, preparing for parenthood. That's why, because he's talking to the youth. Know yourself, control yourself. Definitely talking to the youth there. And let me see. Oh, blessed are the teachable from 1964. I'm thinking that might be it. So let me go back here, all right, and tell you that... Those are not all the tapes he had, as I mentioned. However, there was one tape that he had, and he was most famous for telling two kinds of stories. His World War II stories, when he went over to, uh, actually to the, I'm not even sure where he went. Were some of them over there in Europe? I know that they end in uh, Japan and in the South Pacific. So let me just focus on that. I think it was probably all in the South Pacific because that's where all the famous stuff happens, his famous stories. And one of the stories that he told about had to do with his very best friend dying in his arms from getting shelled. And as he died in his arms, he was telling Paul, if you ever come to a place where you're speaking to a lot of youth of America, ironically that that should happen, and he was speaking to the youth, of America. If that should ever happen, please let them know that it is an honor to lay down my life for them. And he would tell that story. He also told stories of harrowing escapes where he should have died uh, from machine gun fire or from tank treads, all sorts of stories. 
but he was miraculously spared each and every time. And these were wonderful stories. They were very faith-promoting stories. And I felt the spirit when he told those stories. I even got a special little tape. It wasn't one that I showed. I didn't find it on the internet, but it said uh, World War II stories on it. And I would play that over and over. And those were very appealing to me. I remember being a post-missionary in Austin, Texas, and playing that and listening to them and just being overawed with the spirituality of this man and the spirit that I felt. The other set of stories that he told had to do with his being, I think it was with the St. Louis Cardinals, a professional ball player, and the experiences he had there. Those weren't life-threatening, like the war stories, but he had the opportunity to share the gospel and the Book of Mormon with other famous, famous ball players, and he told those stories as well. Okay, I love those. Those were great too. I felt warm. I felt good. I felt the spirit. I knew they were true. The problem is, is that the stories that Paul H. Dunn told about World War II, about professional baseball playing, were false. They didn't happen. He made them up. And this all came to a head in 1991 when Lynn Packer, a journalist who's done a lot of uh, recent uh, work, he's still alive and still doing investigative journalism relating to Tim Ballard and Operation Underground Railroad right now. Uh, but back then, he was working on the story of Paul H. Dunn, and he did some investigation, and he's the one who found out that actually, no, these things didn't happen. Paul H. Dunn was making them up. So let me go ahead. I'm going to add this, and I'll go to the next slide. And here's where it started to break. Here's a picture of a Sunstone magazine uh, featuring the article, The Baseball and War Stories of Elder Paul H. Dunn. That's where it's being finally debunked. And then Lynn Packer wrote a book called Lying for the Lord, The Paul H. Dunn Stories. And you can see there's a picture of Paul Dunn. And half of him is a St. Louis ball player, and half of him is a uh, GI in World War II. Now, what happened then on February 16th, 1991, the Associated Press published an article about Elder Dunn admitting that he had made these stories up, although he put a different kind of spin on it. That's what it amounts to. And it starts off with this. Elder Paul H. Dunn, one of the most popular speakers and authors in the Mormon church, made up many of the stories about baseball and battle he told as personal experiences, a newspaper reported Saturday. For example, Dunn's best friend did not die in his arms in World War II, nor did the longtime member of the church's hierarchy ever play Major League Baseball for the St. Louis Cardinals, the Arizona Republic said. The Arizona Republic is a newspaper that Lynn Packer worked for. They ran with the story. Other places would not publish it because it was too hot to handle. Arizona Republic went with it and it was picked up by the AP. Dunn, 66, acknowledged those stories and others were untrue, but defended fabrications as necessary to illustrate his theological and moral points. He compared his stories to the parables told by Jesus. Of course, there's a problem with that, right? Jesus is telling parables. He's not saying this happened to me. He's just telling a parable about some unnamed person, right? 
So the article says, but Paul Dunn conceded Jesus's parables weren't about himself as Paul H. Dunn's stories were about himself. Now, this is just a part of this article, right? I found the entirety of the article here. And I'm going to go to the point where I left off on the last slide. He compared his stories to the parables told by Jesus, but conceded Jesus's parables weren't about himself, right? As a Mormon general authority since 1964, Dunn was among the 90 men who govern the seven and a half million member church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But in October 1989, he was placed on emeritus status for health reasons. This is when this came out, was in 1989. Finally, two years later, we're having a publication about this. But 1989 is when it came out. He was placed on emeritus status for health reasons. The action came weeks after the church leadership investigated allegations by freelance writer Lynn Packer that Dunn's war and sports stories were fabricated. Church spokesman Don Lefebvre, in a written statement to the Republic and the Associated Press, reiterated Dunn has retired because of age and health. Right. Here's what Lefebvre wrote. We are unable to fully or finally verify either the accounts under challenge or the allegations about those accounts. Lefebvre wrote, adding that the church does not condone misrepresentations. Okay, so here's the thing. This guy, this best friend of Paul H. Dunn that he said died in his arms in Japan on an island off of Japan while they're island hopping during World War II. He's still alive. Or at least he was as of the time the story wrote. He was found by Lynn Packer. Lynn Packer contacted him, talked to him. He's not dead. So if Paul H. Dunn is telling a story about his best friend dying in his arms with this wonderful expression of faith and patriotism on his lips, but this guy didn't die and he's still alive. I'm not sure how it is that the church can say through their spokesperson, Lefebvre, we are unable to fully or finally verify either the accounts under challenge or the allegations about those accounts. Okay, that's not true. If you say a guy died, but he didn't die and he's still alive, you're able to verify that that didn't happen. Okay, just saying. That's not true. They're soft peddling it. And I think they're also probably soft peddling his retiring because of age and health. I think that he retired because of, um, well, misrepresenting and lying. The newspaper said the church pressured Packer. Now, this is important, okay? The newspaper, that's the Arizona Republic, said the church pressured Packer. That's not Boyd K. This is Lynn. He's a nephew, but no, he's not Boyd K. The newspaper said the church pressured Lynn Packer, a Mormon, not to publish his findings which were provided to the Republic, that's the Arizona Republic, last fall after Packer's teaching contract at Brigham Young University was terminated for pursuing the story. So Packer's a journalist. He's on the case. He's following the story, and people are not happy about it. People in leadership in the church. He had a teaching contract at BYU. He was told to stop pursuing the story, and sure as hell, don't publish about it. Otherwise, bad things are going to happen. He wouldn't let it go, and he got fired. They did not renew his contract. Despite Dunn's retirement, his grandfatherly demeanor and down-home self-deprecating storytelling style 
continue to make him a popular public speaker and the most prolific author among current and former church leaders. Remember, this is as of February 1991. He receives royalties from 23 inspirational cassette tapes, we've seen a few of those, and 28 books, many of which contain his exaggerated war and baseball stories. Those were the favorites. Relying partly on his reputation as a former professional athlete, Dunn also is promoting his new business, Sports Values Training Centers, which brings professional athletes and teenage boys together for inspirational workshops. Dunn, who has a doctorate in education, said he doesn't consider it deceitful to exaggerate or alter facts. He said his technique is to combine elements of several true stories to create a single story that will better convey a message and capture an audience's interest. Well, he certainly succeeded in capturing his audience's interest. The problem is, is that this member of the audience and many, many others felt the spirit testify to them that what he was saying was true, only to find out in 1991 that it wasn't and leave us in shambles and asking, what the heck do I do with a testimony from the Holy Ghost that told me that what you were saying was true and then I find out you were lying to me? Quite a predicament, quite a dilemma. The article goes on. In the case of his false claim to have played for the St. Louis Cardinals, He said youngsters can relate better to a major league team than to the farm teams for which he briefly played. He he did play baseball briefly for a farm team, but that's not good enough. So instead, he fabricated the idea that he was actually a professional baseball player for the St. Louis Cardinals. Dunn said the combining of stories seems justifiable in terms of illustrating a point. My motives are pure and innocent. (laughs) My motives are pure and innocent, said the fabricator and liar. Dunn told the Republic during an interview attended by his attorney and a friend. I haven't purposely tried to embellish or rewrite history, said the guy who purposely tried to embellish or rewrite history. What a strange thing to say. I haven't purposely tried to embellish or rewrite history. I've tried to illustrate points that would create interest through embellishing and rewriting history, Dunn said. Combining war stories is simply putting history in little finer packages that happen to be false. Dunn said he cooperated with the church's investigation but was not advised of its conclusions. He denied it was connected to his retirement, which he insisted was for poor health that has since improved. I did not add that to the story. If you can read that on the screen, you can see that that's there. He insisted that his retirement was for poor health that has since improved. Well, I guess it didn't improve enough to get his position back with the church. At the same time, however, the university, BYU, terminated Packer, that's Lynn Packer's teaching contract, in part because he wanted to publish a story about his findings. Gordon Whiting, then chairman of the BYU Communications Department, that's where Lynn Packer taught, had warned Lynn Packer in a memo that, quote, publication of the Paul Dunn article will damage the church, will damage the university, will damage the department, and will damage you, period, end of quote. So that's Gordon Whiting in a memo, the chairman of the BYU Communications, in a memo to Lynn Packer. 
publication of the Paul Dunn article will damage the church, will damage the university, will damage the department, and will damage you. And indeed, it did damage him. But God bless Lynn Packer for pushing forward, doing the right thing, letting the consequence follow, and getting the truth out there. And in this case, the truth is the last thing that the church wanted to go public. Because now they had to act. This is why it took two years for them to finally get around to retiring Paul H. Dunn, putting him on emeritus status, a little bit ahead of schedule. Now, later that same year, October 26, 1991, Deseret News reports that Elder Dunn offers apology for errors and admits censure. He was censured by the church. He was put on emeritus status. It's a bit of a mystery what happened there. We know it was an excommunication. But here's that story. In an open letter to LDS church members, Elder Paul H. Dunn apologized Saturday for not having, quote, always been accurate, end quote, in telling his popular war and baseball stories, and he acknowledged being disciplined for it by church authorities. Elder Dunn, an emeritus member, he's now emeritus, right? That's retired. Elder Dunn, an emeritus member of the First Quorum of Seventy of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, asked the church's first presidency and council of the Twelve for the opportunity to send an open letter to church members. The letter was published in Saturday's issue of the Church News. I confess, this is quote, I confess that I have not always been accurate in my public talks and writings, Elder Dunn wrote. Furthermore, I have indulged in other activities inconsistent with the high and sacred office which I have held, period, and that should be an end quote there. Oh, actually, it isn't because the quote continues to the next line. For all of these, I feel a deep sense of remorse and ask forgiveness of any whom I may have offended. Okay, the problem isn't so much that you offended me, Paul. The problem is, is that you dashed my testimony. You made me question the witness I had received from the Holy Ghost that what you were telling me was true. And as a consequence of that, you also undermined my testimony of the Book of Mormon. And you made me question the spirit and witness of the Holy Ghost that I believed to testify to me that the Book of Mormon was true. I believe this article goes on to the next line or the next slide. A former Army private and minor league baseball player, minor league baseball player, Elder Dunn told riveting accounts, true, of his war and baseball experiences that made him one of the most popular speakers in the church. According to the Associated Press, he was author or co-author of 28 books and is featured on 23 inspirational tapes. He served in the presidency of the First Quorum of the Seventy from 1976 to 1980. In 1989, Elder Dunn was placed on emeritus status for, quote, reasons of age and health, unquote, the church said. In February 1991, the Arizona Republic reported that Elder Dunn had made up or combined elements of many of his war and baseball stories. In his open letter, Elder Dunn, 67, said general authorities of the church have conducted in-depth investigations of charges that he had engaged in activities unbecoming of a church member. They have weighed the evidence, he said. They have censured me and placed a heavy penalty upon me. I accept their censure and the imposed penalty and pledge to conduct my life in such a way as to merit their confidence and full fellowship. Church spokesman Don LaFave, remember Don LaFave? 
said Saturday that the nature of the penalty is an internal matter, and we don't discuss such matters publicly. Well, apparently there's a lot of matters that the church doesn't discuss publicly, and the history that Elder Dunn had of fabricating his faith-promoting World War II and professional baseball stories were one of those things that they didn't want to discuss publicly, but the only reason they did is because they were forced to by Lynn Packer, who refused to be cowed into submission and followed the story and published it and brought it to national attention. So in 1991, Elder Dunn asked the church's first presidency and Quorum of the Twelve Apostles for permission to issue an open letter to all Latter-day Saints. The church agreed, and on October 26th, the following letter was published in the church news, a supplement section of the Deseret News, a newspaper owned by the LDS Church. This is the letter itself. Instead of just reading an article quoting excerpts, this is the letter, October 23rd, 1991. I have been accused of various activities unbecoming a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I confess that I have not always been accurate in my public talks and writings. That's a nice way of putting it. Furthermore, I have indulged in other activities inconsistent with the high and sacred office which I have held. And those are basically beyond the scope of this particular show, those other things he did. My uh, For all of these, I feel a deep sense of remorse now that I've been caught and exposed and ask forgiveness of any whom I may have offended. I mean, re remember this deep sense of remorse. He's been doing this for, oh my gosh, since the 1960s. So this is at least 20 years later, 20 plus years later that finally he's getting around to feeling this deep sense of remorse for doing what he's been doing for over 20 years. My brethren of the general authorities over a long period of time have conducted in-depth investigations of the charges made against me, parenthesis, because of that SOB Lynn Packer and he wouldn't let up into parenthesis. They have weighed the evidence. They have censured me and placed a heavy penalty upon me. I accept the censure and the imposed penalty, none of which anybody knows what it is, by the way, and pledge to conduct my life in such a way as to merit their confidence and full fellowship. In making these acknowledgments, I plead for the understanding of my brethren and sisters throughout the church and give assurance of my determination so to live as to bring added respect to the cause I deeply love and honor to the Lord, who is my Redeemer sincerely, Paul H. Dunn. The exact nature of this heavy penalty imposed upon Dunn is unclear. It is clear, it is clear that Dunn was not excommunicated from the church, though it is not known whether or not he was placed under some other form of church discipline, such as disfellowshipment or probation, or as I tend to think, the heavy penalty, the censure was simply being released early. Typically, when you're 70, you go to emeritus status or you get retired at the age of 70. So he being 67, 66, that was early, and they did it for health reasons, and then he got better, and he still wasn't 70, but he remained retired. So here's five takeaways from these two testimonies, because believe me, I've struggled with that and this over the years. What do I make of these two testimonies? My testimony of the Book of Mormon, given me by the Holy Ghost, and my testimony of Paul H. Dunn, given me by the Holy Ghost. Number one, first takeaway, a spiritual experience, no matter how strong, is not a good means of determining the truth. And I have to say this about everything now because of Paul H. Dunn. Actually, I'm not blaming him. I'm giving him credit for opening my eyes to this. 
this was a very important experience in my spiritual journey. But a spiritual experience, no matter how strong, is not a good means of determining the truth. I found that out with Paul H. Dunn, which then made me necessarily question, in turn, my testimony of the Book of Mormon, the first testimony I started out with. So that's the first takeaway. Second takeaway from these two testimonies. Members of other religions have spiritual experiences that demonstrate to them that their religion is true. When I was more active and more believing than I am now as a member of the church, I always had to deal and struggle with this idea about other people in other churches claiming to have spiritual experiences. Well, how do I make sense of that? Why would the Holy Ghost, the true Holy Ghost, the real Holy Ghost, be giving them witnesses that their church is true when that would necessarily be leading them away from the true church, the LDS church. It just didn't make sense to me. And I fell back on the usual standard explanations. Number one, it's a false spirit. But then I had to think, well, what about the spirit that I'm receiving and relying on for my testimony? How do I say that's not a false spirit? It's a false spirit. It's a satanic. It's an evil spirit, sort of like a false spirit. Same problem. If they're being fooled by a false satanic spirit, then what do I say about my testimony? Or they're kind of crazy. You know, they're mistaken. Let's just say they're mistaken. They're not actually feeling the spirit. They're feeling something, but they're just wrong. Same problem. How do I know that I'm not wrong? So that was an area that I avoided as long as I could until finally Paul H. Dunn showed me the light and took me on the journey where I could confront those issues and realize that spiritual experiences in other faiths are just as valid as the spiritual experiences in my faith, or at least there is no rational basis to distinguish one from the other. I remember working at a bank back in 1985 and 1986 in downtown Austin, and we were in the commercial division. There was, I was a teller. There was another guy next to me. His name was Robin Chiswell. He was quite a character. I remember him well, not a member of the LDS church, but a member of the Episcopalian church. It was the Episcopalian church. I remember he used to call it the whiskey palians. <laughs> anyway, he was talking about some church meeting that he had been at over the weekend and how there was singing and there was just really strong spirit there. And he said to me, he says, you know, I know the Holy ghost was there and nobody can tell me different. And that rankled me. That rankled me. I wasn't going to tell him different because how can I do that? Even though I thought it was different, but I didn't know how to distinguish it. But it really bothered me that he could claim to have experiences with the Holy Ghost showing that his church was true. When I knew at that time in the mid eighties that he must be mistaken. Now I look back on it in a very different way. Thanks to Paul H. Dunn. Okay. Takeaway number three, although I have personally that's me. Although I have personally had several significant spiritual experiences, and I've described two of them tonight, and even though those experiences were very real to me, I have to be careful in how I interpret those experiences. Because what I was doing with Paul H. Dunn is what I did with my experience with the Book of Mormon, is that I had very real experiences, and yet I interpreted those the way I had been taught to interpret things with the Book of Mormon, which is... If I receive a witness of some sort, a spiritual manifestation that I associate with the Book of Mormon, then the interpretation that I'm supposed to derive from that, at least according to the church, is that it means it's true. It means it's real. It means it's history. It means it actually happened. And that's what I fell into. 
that was an error. And my experience with Paul H. Dunn proved to me that that was an error. It doesn't mean I didn't have those experiences and that those experiences were not real, but that I must be careful in how I interpret those experiences. And indeed, I need to remember, and I came to understand and realize, that those spiritual experiences belong to nobody except to me. And the interpretation of them is up to me. And I should not allow anyone else, no matter their position, in the church to dictate to me what that experience means, or in other words, how I should interpret it, which again is that the Book of Mormon is true, real, actual, authentic history, which, as I've studied over the years, it clearly is not. So let's go to takeaway number four. If the Holy Ghost could witness to me that Paul H. Dunn's stories were true when they were actually false, what do I make of the witness the Holy Ghost gave to me of the Book of Mormon? I've addressed that question earlier, but here I have it as number four of the five takeaways that I gain from these two testimonies and comparing them. So, and this is very important, if the Holy Ghost could witness to me that Paul H. Dunn's stories were true when they were actually false, what do I make of the witness the Holy Ghost gave to me of the Book of Mormon? And the fifth takeaway is this, if a charismatic speaker, this is why Paul H. Dunn was so dangerous to the church and still is for people who know about him and know his story and know what happened. If a charismatic speaker such as Paul H. Dunn could convince me his miracle stories were true with the Holy Ghost bearing witness, what do I make of another charismatic speaker named Joseph Smith who convinced me his miracle stories were true with the Holy Ghost bearing witness? So those are my five takeaways from this tale of two testimonies. I hope you've enjoyed it. In conclusion, please hit like if you like this. Please hit subscribe if you like this. And if you like this, please share this podcast with friends and family. I will be here every week covering in advance the material that will be discussed in church Sunday school in the Come Follow Me manual throughout the year. I hope that you will join me for this journey. It, it, I think it'll be very, very interesting. Excuse me, I'm trying to click buttons while I'm talking. Always a dangerous proposition. Here we go. It should be very, very interesting. It should be uh, a lot of fun. And I'm looking forward to it very much. And I hope you'll join me on this journey of adventure and studying the Book of Mormon in the year 2024 with Mormon Sunday School with Radio Free Mormon. Thanks so much, everybody. I'll see you next week. 